Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. This is the 22nd program in this series where I'm going to speak about John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47, the end of John chapter 5. In the previous program, I was explaining that Jesus provoked a conflict with the religious Jews. He provoked this conflict by healing a man at the pool of Bethesda, one who had an infirmity for 38 years, and that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. When the religious Jews discovered that it was Jesus who healed this man on the Sabbath day, they confronted Jesus about what he did because that could have been considered to be work, work that was done on the Sabbath day. The man's life was not in danger. Jesus could have waited until the following day to heal the man, but Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. Now, this was considered to be a work by the religious Jews, and the punishment, the penalty for violating the Sabbath law according to the Mosaic law is to be executed, and they had one witness. That was the man who was healed. They needed to have two or more witnesses, according to the law. But even so, with just one witness, they confronted the Lord Jesus about what he did. And he responded to them and told them that he was God, that he's the one who healed the man and that he was God, because clearly this would have required a divine healing, divine intervention in this man's life, or at least I believe there was enough evidence to show that this was clearly a divine healing, even though this could probably be debated to some extent. Either way, Jesus responds to the confrontation. He responds and uses the opportunity to explain to the people that he is God. And in the previous program, I explained the different ways that Jesus revealed that he was God, the testimony of the works that he did, the fact that God would give him the authority of judgment, that he would resurrect people from the dead, and that he would give people eternal life. These were phrases that he used. And in addition to that, he referred to himself as the Son of God. And I explained from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that this was a recognition, this was a phrase that the Jews would have recognized that Jesus was stating that he really was the everlasting Father, the mighty God, by referring to himself as the Son of God, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I also quoted from Daniel chapter 7 with regards to Jesus being the Son of Man. So this was in the previous program. In this program, I'm going to move on into verse 31, where Jesus explains that he has four witnesses who will testify on his behalf. 
So they had one witness against him, and he himself had four witnesses in his favor concerning who he really is. Beginning in verse 31, this is John chapter 5, verse 31, it says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, this is according to the law that his own personal testimony about himself would not qualify as a defense. It doesn't mean that just because he said something good about himself that it isn't true. It just means that in the context of the laws of the Sanhedrin, his own testimony about himself would not be considered to be an acceptable testimony if he was brought to trial. Continuing into verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet you did not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. He's referring to John the Baptist in John chapter 5, verse 32 to 36. Jesus is referring to John the Baptist, who was a testimony of Jesus. Now, in verse 34, Jesus states, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, in the sense that Jesus personally did not require the testimony of John the Baptist, but they considered John to be of importance. They considered him to be someone who was sent by God, at least to an extent, because they were willing to rejoice in his light. And the main reason why they were able to rejoice in John the Baptist, even though I explained in the programs related to John chapter 1, that they questioned John about who he was. They questioned him because they wanted to know if he was the Messiah, if he was the prophet. It was not as if they disagreed with John. They just wanted to understand who he claimed to be and what his role might be within the society. But they did rejoice in John the Baptist because he was encouraging people to return to the Mosaic Law. That was what water baptism was about. They certainly would not approve of him baptizing Jews. However, they could rejoice in the fact that he was encouraging people to rededicate their lives, to recommit their lives to a life of repentance and obedience to the Mosaic Law. That was what John the Baptist was doing when he baptized people with water in the way that he did. And so the religious Jews could certainly rejoice in the conclusion of what John the Baptist did. They could rejoice in the conclusion in the sense that John would produce a new group of people who would be committed to the Mosaic Law, and the Pharisees could certainly embrace these people and encourage these people and teach and disciple these people. For them, this would be a good thing. However, John also testified that Jesus is the Messiah, that he would be the one who would baptize people with the Holy Spirit, which meant that through the Lord Jesus, people would be saved. 
they would be made alive by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that was lost in Adam in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve violated the law by eating from the wrong tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so again, in verse 32, Jesus speaks about John the Baptist, even though Jesus doesn't need John's testimony, the people who Jesus was speaking to would have accepted John's testimony. Again, in John chapter 5, verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his sight. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And so in addition to John the Baptist, he has the works that he is performing, such as the work that they are confronting him over, that they are confronting him over the fact that he healed this man. There is more than enough evidence to show that this healing was most likely a divine healing. It was a work of God. Jesus spoke about this in the previous passages where he stated that his works testify of the truth that he is God because these are works of God. These are works that only God could perform. Therefore, he must be God. And here he refers to this again in verse 36 where he speaks about the works as a testimony on his behalf. That these are works that are evidence of who he is. And so while they were confronting him over the issue that he did this work on the Sabbath day, the fact is, is that this work was done. And the work itself, if they were to convict him by saying that he did this work, they would validate, they would verify, they would assert that this was a real work. Therefore, if this was a divine work, a work of God, then Jesus is God and the work is testimony To that effect, continuing into verse 37, and the father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. In other words, God himself bears witness that Jesus is God, that Jesus is who he says he is, the Father himself bears witness, but they are unwilling to hear his witness. This healing is one example, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. This is an example. They are so focused on the fact that this could be a violation of the Sabbath law that they are ignoring the work of God. They are ignoring the testimony of God. He himself is bearing witness, but they are not hearing his witness. They are not hearing, they are not seeing, they are not understanding, they are not recognizing 
the witness of God. In verse 37, you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, even though his form was right in front of them. They were not willing to acknowledge that he was God manifested in the flesh. And so because of their refusal to recognize the truth, Jesus is able to say, you are not hearing his voice. You are not seeing he who is right in front of you. And in verse 38, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. They did not believe the truth. They did not believe the testimony of God. They did not believe the word of God. They did not believe what God had to say in the scriptures. And so how could they believe the things that he has to say now openly and directly to them? How would they, how would they know? How could they relate? to the things that were being said. There was no way that they could make the connection with the person who already spoke, who already gave his testimony of himself in the scriptures and who he is right in front of them, speaking with them at this time right now. In verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures themselves testify of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus states that he's got John the Baptist as a witness. The Heavenly Father is a witness. And the scriptures themselves testify of Jesus. But they are so focused on the scriptures themselves, thinking that by the scriptures themselves, they may have life or life eternal, that they are completely ignoring the person who is testified of in the scriptures, the one who wrote the scriptures, the divine presence of God, who is the true author of the scriptures. Their dependency was on the scriptures. In this case, you could say that their dependency was on the Sabbath law. You have the law that is written down and their dependency is so focused on the Sabbath law itself to be sure that they live in obedience to the Sabbath law, that they do no work and also that they execute anybody who does. They are so focused on the law itself that they do not know the person who wrote the law and that this person is right in front of them. He's there. He's the one who wrote the law and he is the one who healed the man on the Sabbath day, which is also a way of stating that his divine work of healing the man is not a violation of the Sabbath law. He's the one who wrote it He came to live in obedience to the law. Clearly, he's not going to violate the law. This is their belief, their belief that if a person heals someone on the Sabbath day, when that healing could have waited until the following day, if they heal this man on that day, then that person could be coming within the boundaries of possibly 
violating the Sabbath law. And so because he could possibly come within the boundaries, they are making the assumption that it is a violation just to be safe, just to be sure, just to be certain, just in case. That was the position of the Pharisees. And because of their decision to live and to believe in this way, they could not hear the testimony of John the Baptist, the Heavenly Father, the living God himself, or the testimony of the scriptures concerning the person who was right in front of them, who they were accusing of violating the law. Again, in verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And they did believe this. They did genuinely believe that through the scriptures, through their study of the scriptures, that they would have eternal life, not through their relationship with God, not that life would be imputed to them by God personally as a person, but because of the scriptures. I know that this might sound a little awkward to some of you, but it's true. I have right here a prayer that was written and that was recited every time the Pharisees would read the scriptures. I used to pray this every time I read the scriptures as well. I know this prayer. This is an English translation. It says, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who in giving us a Torah of truth hast planted everlasting life within us. Blessed art thou, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Again, who in giving us a Torah of truth hast planted everlasting life within us. It was a definitive belief that because we have the Torah, the Torah is the law of Moses, because we have the Torah, which can also be referred to as the scriptures, that's fine, because we have the scriptures, as Jesus says in verse 39 here in John chapter 5, because they have the scriptures and they study the scriptures and they believe the scriptures, because of that, they automatically have everlasting life. They automatically have eternal life. Now, this is nowhere in the scriptures. God never said that this would be the case. Ever. He never said that if you will find a way to get the words of the law into your heart, into your being, into your mind, then you will have eternal life with him in heaven. He never said that. He never claimed that. He never got close to that. That simply was never revealed by God at all. It is a complete and total assumption that the Pharisees have made, I personally believe, because they recognized that there was no other way that they could have eternal life, and so they just decided that this would be the way. It would be convenient. It's all that God gave them, and so it must be the way. The law was given in order to show people that they had a need for eternal life. It was an assumption that the people could have eternal life by the law, but that was not true. The scriptures testify of a person, of a Messiah, of a Savior, 
of a person who would invoke a new covenant, another covenant, and that this covenant could be invoked, would be established because he would forgive people's sins. He would forgive people's sins so that they would be set free from the old covenant, from the law, because the law demanded obedience or death. Jesus died on our behalf. And through that, we receive forgiveness. And he provided us with forgiveness so that those who will believe and trust in Jesus for who he is, he would give them the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life, who would dwell within them eternally because there would be no sin left unforgiven that would cause the Holy Spirit to depart from anyone ever again according to the law of sin and death. And so when Jesus tells them in verse 39 that you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He was making a clear division. Jesus was making a clear division between himself and them, stating that they do not have eternal life and that he is the one who does and that he is the one who gives eternal life. Just as he testified in the previous verses that he is the person who can resurrect the dead and he is the person who gives people eternal life. In verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. Which would be understandable considering the fact that they are confronting him right now over the possibility that maybe he violated the Sabbath law with their one witness, knowing full well that they need two or more witnesses. They are more concerned about confronting Jesus about the healing that he did than the healing that he did, the fact that this man was healed. There is no love in them, in their hearts. There is no love of God within them, no concern for the man who was healed, no concern for the Lord Jesus and for what he did and how he participated in the work of God and no love for God himself as a person for the fact that he was gracious and loving enough to heal this man. They do not have the love of God in them. And Jesus expresses this in a way that he is a witness who can testify against them that the love of God is not in them. And that would be a profound testimony, considering the fact that they are approaching him and confronting him in this way that is completely inappropriate. He can clearly state that this represents the lack of the love of God within them. And should he be called upon by the living God to testify against them when they die and they go before him in the kingdom of heaven, then he will certainly be able to testify against them. Now, he's also stated that he is the one who issues judgment. So he is a witness and he's also the one who will issue the judgment 
they need to take him seriously. But then he goes on. In verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus tells them directly that it is Moses who will testify against them, that even though Jesus could bear witness of the fact that they did not have the love of God in them, Moses could also be a witness to testify against them. Jesus and Moses, he has two witnesses against them before the Heavenly Father who can pass eternal judgment against them. He has four witnesses who will testify on his behalf. John the Baptist, his works, God himself, and the scriptures. And he has two witnesses who can testify against them, himself and Moses. They should take him seriously. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This program is the 22nd program in the verse-by-verse study on the Gospel of John. In this program, I spoke about John chapter 5, verses 31 to 37, where I emphasized the four witnesses that Jesus spoke of who could defend him in the event that there was an accusation or a conflict relative to what the Jews were presenting to him because he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. He presented four witnesses who would speak on his behalf concerning his identity as God and his right to heal someone. John the Baptist, his works themselves, the living God himself personally, and the scriptures. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,